So today we're if you're a guest with us this morning, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 23 uh, through verse 11. But before we get to that, I wanted to share a little bit about what happened this weekend. Um, we had a Native American uh, preaching conference. Uh, we found, or I should say we, Leslie, the man to uh, my left there in that picture, um, Leslie Stewart, travels around the world uh, doing two-day conferences, encouraging pastors to preach in an exegetical style. Um, for those of you who are regulars here, you know what that is because that's what I do. <laughs> And so he's noticed that in many places, people just, you know, they whatever comes to mind, topical sermons, which are fine if you connect it with God's word, but he's found that many times they don't, or randomly they'll use a scripture and then they'll preach something completely remote and different from the passage. And that uh, he actually has someone that goes around and looks for places that are like that so that he can offer this conference on how to preach through the scriptures. So when he came here and said, can I do this here at Wayside Chapel for Native Americans? I said, absolutely. I was glad to have them come and do that. So this is a picture of the group. There were, uh, I think, six Native Americans came uh, with Pastor Tooley, and then there were a couple others that he brought up from Phoenix. Um, and they, it was a two-day conference. The, the uh, Native American brothers and sisters in Christ loved it. They want to have it up in Holbrook or in Flagstaff or in, in New Mexico, at, in Taos there in Mexico. So it was a good conference and everyone was blessed. And uh, it, I just thought I needed to share that with you because sometimes you don't, you don't see some of the things that happen behind the scenes. So I want to keep you updated on those things. And another thing I would like to ask you to keep in prayer uh, a little over a year ago, um, a criminal psychologist was baptized here. She just happened to be coming through. She came to the Lord. She wanted to be baptized. She went back to her ministry in Colorado and um, just found the Holy Spirit working in her, helping people uh, uh, see what the core root of their problems was. And so um, she it like took her counseling to another level. Well, as soon as she started doing that, she was attacked in different ways by different organizations and uh, just all kinds of problems in her life. And it's obviously the enemy doesn't want her helping those in need. He has them in his grip and he doesn't want to let go of them. So um, uh, it's, right now she just faced one trial, uh, one organization whom she exposed their corruption and so uh, they just took her to court. So I appreciate you if you would pray for Brenna. Uh, she needs our prayers. Good sister. And she's going to come in uh, the end of June to share. Uh, she wanted to share with the congregation how God's been using her since she came to Wayside. So we're looking forward to that. Again, today we're in 1 Corinthians 10, 23, one, 11 through 1, uh, just connecting back to the uh, conference, I told the attendees, you know, that it's, uh, when I first started preaching exegetically, uh, or someone asked me to pray about doing it, and I was praying about it, and I told the person, you know, this is really hard, because you hit some tough passages when you preach right through the scriptures. 
Well, this weekend next, we're in those tough passages where I go, what am I going to say about this? But of course, there's a, every bit of God's word is, is for our benefit to teach us and to instruct us in righteousness. So um, let's stand together as I read, uh, in honor of God's word, as I read 1 Corinthians 10, 23 to 11, 1. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to, to dinner, and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one in, who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So Paul has been addressing the need of, uh, up to this point in the letter to um, the Corinthians, the need for unity in that church, a unity of believers based on their oneness in Christ. And our participation in communion reminds us that we hold the sacrifice of Jesus as our core belief, as our source of love for God and, and our love for one another. But some people have been using this excuse of freedom in Christ to justify offending um, others in the church family or, or even unbelievers. And their mantra was, all things are lawful. They knew they were set free from the Judaic laws, the laws given to Moses. And so they took it to extreme and said, well, we're no longer bound by those laws. So we can do what we want, including acting selfishly and offending other people. Verse 23 again, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, they say, but not all things build up. So the phrase was probably a favorite phrase of those in the Corinthian church who proposed this more liberal view, I can, I can do whatever I want. Yes, we can eat meat offered to an idol. Paul said that earlier in chapter eight. But Paul asked, is it helpful? Does it build others up? What do people think when they see you eating that? And who are we joining when we do that? Who might be affected by what they see us doing? Is it helping someone? So Paul's not just telling them, do this and don't do that. He, instead, he's teaching the Corinthians and he's teaching us that in issues not made absolutely clear in Scripture, we should always default to the law of love. 
Is this expressing the love of Christ? Is Christ honored in this action? Is the person I'm talking to sensing the love of Christ? So in this passage, there's two perspectives presented. One is of the legalist who, when a neighbor invites him to dine, he asks he ask the, the host that invited him, where did this meat come from? And if the host says, well, it came from the temple, oh, I can't eat that. I'm a Christian. And thereby insult, uh, thereby um, kind of insulting the guest and saying, hey, yeah, I know you provided this, but I can't eat it. I'm too good. It's that holier-than-thou attitude, right? The second is this liberal view. When the host declares the meat is from the pagan temple, expecting the good Jew or Christian would decline, the liberal goes ahead and he eats it, thereby wounding the conscience of his host. After all, he says, I'm free in Christ. Whether my host knows it or not, I can do what I please. The host then thinks he's caused the guest to sin. So both of these situations bring no glory to God. The guests are thinking of themselves, not about loving their neighbor as themselves. The only way they can bring glory to God is to think of what's best for the neighbor and act accordingly. And that's the law of love. Verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. What a great rule to live by. The law of love is really summed up in that verse. It's not about me, it's about others. It's a great verse for the me generation, well, and for all of us. Humbly put others first. Why? Well, because Jesus died for them. He loves them. As God's goodness leads us to repentance, his goodness, is, goodness seen in us may have the same effect on them, bringing them, drawing them to Christ. Paul teaches this in a number of different ways all throughout his letters. I just picked a few of them. Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. And to the church in Rome, he wrote in chapter 2, verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Now, wouldn't that be cool if, if everyone in the congregation tried to outdo honoring one another? We had a lady in the, in the church. She's with the Lord now, Ida, Ida Pierce. And she lived this verse. She was always trying to honor others. She would always see something good in you and she would let you know what she saw in you. And then to the Thessalonians, he wrote in, in chapter four, verse nine, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. So we can see from these verses that it's a major emphasis of the apostle Paul. But if we look further, we'll find that's because it was Jesus' emphasis, for God is love. And the only way to break, break free from our, our self-centered condition is to live in the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit with the fruits of the Spirit, the first of which is love. Verse 25, Eat whatever sold in the market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. The meat market might have had 
meat in it that was offered uh, idol along with uh, idols along with other meat. So Paul's saying, just don't ask when you purchase the meat. Don't say, did this this particular piece come from the temple? In the market, a person won't be participating in the worship ceremony with the pagans. That's really the issue. It it doesn't matter where the meat itself came from. It's just meat. But obtaining it in a temple, in a pagan temple, can be participation and celebration of demons and the fornication that went on afterward that was defiling the believers. But if it came from the meat market and a guest whose conscience is weak ask if the meat came from the temple, then you can honestly say, you know, I don't know. Verse 26, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Paul's quoting Psalm 24.1 to show that everything came from God. It's quoted actually in a part of prayer that rabbis use over food to bless the food, the rabbinically, uh, Levitically qualifying kosher food. So Paul's kind of making a jab at the rabbis. He's saying it's not just kosher food, it's all food. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, all of it is from the Lord. Perhaps he heard Jesus teaching that it's not what enters a man that defiles him, but what comes out from the heart. Every physical God-created thing was declared good by God in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. That's why the psalmist said that in Psalm 24, 1. It's the way that we misuse creation that becomes sinful. As we saw in the previous passage, when we prioritize things above God, then they become idols. God must, God must be first, for we owe our existence to him. We owe our, our the forgiveness of our sins to his grace and his mercy. Now, this is a hard lesson, for the world is constantly offering us different gifts of God, telling us that that thing that God created, that's what's going to satisfy you. If you just use this thing, take this pill, do this trip, whatever, we're constantly bombarded with these advertisements of smiling people. They're so happy because they have this thing as their God that they put first in their life. So it's great for sales. <laughs> it's not good for the soul. Our old nature is like that of Eve in the garden. We're ready to, to listen to self-exalting lies, wanting to be our own God and lusting after what we see. There is pleasure in a sin, fleeting pleasure, temporary pleasure. Every child of God has to learn to enjoy the gifts of God while keeping him in first place, the giver of the gifts in first place. We learn to enjoy his gifts with thanksgiving to him and, and not overindulging in them. We talked about this morning in, in uh, the Bible study about putting boundaries on the good gifts of God so that they don't end up being our God or taking over our time. It's the lesson of moderation and those good boundaries that God gives us. And we all struggle with it in one form or another because we are all human. Verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever's set before you without raising questions 
on the ground of conscience. So, in other words, don't ask the host where he got the meat, and it won't become an issue. This is the way of love. It's not about you. It's not about the meat. It's about loving and witnessing Christ to your host. If we're overflowing with the fruits of the Spirit, we bring the presence of God with us wherever we go. It's attractive. People who are seeking the truth will be drawn to us. Notice that unbelievers invited Christians to dine with them in this scenario. We need to be winsome if we're going to win some. If you're a pleasant person who's kind, genuinely interested in others, and concerned about those around you, you'll find yourself invited to a meal or an event as others will naturally want to get to know you. If we only associate with believers, how will we ever share the gospel with the unbelievers? People are more isolated today than at any time in my life, I think. At least that's my observation. And I think part of it is the mask issue and the division over politics. It's become so divisive. People are, are fearful just to talk to each other. Um, I noticed on, on my flights to my vacation and back, the plane is dead silent and everybody's got their screen in front of their face looking at their screen, you know, watching something or listening to something and the headphones on and no one's talking unless it's a family. Otherwise, no one talks to each other. It was neat how on the return trip, uh, God did give us an opportunity to share that, but that was, it's kind of unusual anymore. But look for those opportunities to open up a conversation and ask the person you're with and then let the Holy Spirit guide the conversation and watch for that opportunity to bring in your testimony or to bring Christ into the conversation. Pray for it. When you pray for it, God usually answers that prayer because if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us and we know it's his will. And then avoid the controversial issues so that you have a chance to show God's love to them. Verse 28 and 29. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who's informed you and for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. So if they make it an issue, then don't eat it for their sake. He told you that because he believes you shouldn't be eating it as a Christian and he thinks you're going to mix to your religion with pagan activity and you give the host the wrong impression if you do that. Verse uh, 29b, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience if I partake with thankfulness what I'm denounced why, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. Now, when I read this, I thought, wait a minute, Paul's contradicting himself. And then I realized these are rhetorical questions. This is what would be going through the mind of the Corinthians. Well, if you, don't, if you want me to act for them and not for myself, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? Huh? Paul, tell me. Or if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Uh, because of that for which I gave thanks. I'm free, aren't I? 
Our freedom is not determined by the host's conscience, but by our love for the truth of the gospel and our hope to win them to Jesus. We don't want to give unbelievers the impression that we accept other so-called gods along with Jesus. So recognizing all comes from God and food is sanctified by the word of God in prayer means no one can condemn me for what I eat, whether that means meat from the temple or non-kosher food. I'm free in that regard, but I am also free to refrain from eating if it would wound my host's conscience or give him the wrong impression about believers. In other words, I'm free to deny myself and prefer others. Paul answers those rhetorical questions in the next verse. So, but this comes up in numerous issues. Now you're going, well, wait a minute. Now what does meat have to do? I don't, I hope our butcher doesn't have meat for miles. I can't get it anyway, so what are we talking about? Well, it comes up in our everyday life all the time. Some abstain completely from any form of alcohol. Other believers think it's fine to have a social drink or wine with the meal. Some believers are convinced that we're required to worship on the Sabbath, which may be Saturday or maybe Sunday, depending on which conviction you have. Others see every day alike, Romans 14 tells us. Do you shop on Sunday? Can you have it work on Sunday and worship on Saturday? See, all these things are not essential doctrines of the word of God. And actually, the word of God addresses most of those issues. But if you make it an issue, you can wound someone else's conscience. If someone tells you, I'm, I'm this way, and you want to argue with them, you're just wasting your time. They're already convinced in their own mind. It's not essential. Love doesn't say I'm right and you're wrong over these non-essentials. These are mostly differences among believers, but some overflow to non-believers. When an unbeliever curses in my presence, I don't rebuke them, for they have no conviction not to do so. If I tell them, oh, please don't do that, they'll go, oh, another holier-than-thou guy, you know. I don't drink alcohol, but when I'm with unbelievers or believers who do, I, they know that I'm a pastor, so I explain to them, look, I don't feel bad about you drinking. I don't have any qualms with you drinking. Feel free to have a glass of wine. Uh, it doesn't bother me at all. The point is seeking the good of others and not offending them so we can show them the love of Christ. Verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the, to the glory of God. Paul answers those two rhetorical questions that may be raised by giving us the best rule to go by. Are we doing all we do for the glory of God? That's the gold standard. To glorify God is to publicly praise, honor, and make him famous. If our action is for his glory, to make him known for who he is, we're doing a good thing. If my, if my conscience is bothering me, then I shouldn't do it. If it would bother someone else, I should give up my liberty for God's glory. To drink or not to drink, to eat the meat offered to idols or not to us, it's, is not simply a do or don't. It 
How does it affect the person and therefore bring glory to God? That's what's important. What a great rule of conduct. That is this action going to glorify God? If you don't know how to respond in a situation, ask in prayer how it can reveal the beauty of God and be a light to those around us. Maybe it means just being quiet and appreciative. Maybe it means to speak out, share a scripture or a testimony. If you're sensitive to God's spirit and you desire to glorify God, you'll do the right thing, which is pleasing to God. Paul's saying we can bring glory to God in the simplest everyday things, like eating or drinking. Did you ever, do you think of it that way? When I sit down to a meal, I can eat this meal to the glory of God by thanking him for his goodness that he made this for us. You know, when, when Jews pray, they, they say, we, we bless you, O Lord God, Father, King of the universe, who gave us this bread from the earth. See how you can turn around and make that meal a thing to praise and bless God for. All of life can be glory aimed. Are you convicted? I am. I think this way sometimes, but I don't think this way all the time. I want to, and I hope I grow into that. However, we all should, for he's worthy to be praised in every aspect of life, in everything that we do, whether our labor, our leisure, our so-called time off. When we belong to Jesus, our time is not our own. We are his joyful servants, carrying out his will while we still have time here to invest in heaven. A big part of bringing him glory is not stumbling our neighbor, but acting in selfless love that they might know, know our Savior, Jesus. Verse 32, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Wow. There's another powerful expression, give no offense. And really, this covers everyone. Jesus warned us against offending people. In Matthew 18, 7, he says, woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one who, by whom the temptation comes. And that temptations to sin phrase is a single word in Greek that means to offend them. Woe to those who offend others, he's saying. It's gonna happen, but woe to the ones who cause the offense. When we offend someone by insisting on our rights or or doing something in their presence that they think is sinful, we encourage them to violate their conscience or to be unjustly critical, which can also be sin. And woe is quite a word of a warning of severe judgment. So what Paul is saying here is almost really gentler than the way Jesus said it. Paul clarifies the scope of whom we are not to offend, Jews, Greeks, the church of God, which is really everybody. Jesus simply pronounces judgment upon those who offend unnecessarily. Jesus is saying offenses are going to come. It's inevitable. What you do with them is when temptation comes in. You can judge unjustly or without grace or even though you've received so much grace 
or you can be as gracious as God has been to you. But we should never be the ones who stumble our fellow believer or anyone for that matter. There's a time now, though, to tell younger believers who are caught in a sin the truth of their situation, but that should be done with gentleness and grace, as Paul said in Galatians 6.1. That may offend them, but Jesus and Paul are not talking about someone who's, who's trying to help a person caught in sin. They're addressing someone who unnecessarily offends a person such as those above mentioned situations in which we're seeking our own good or maybe being spiritually legalistic and judgmental, not the, their good. Verse 33, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, I do not, I do everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Pastor Stephen Ohm summed this up really well, so I'm just going to use his comments on this verse. The call for Christians is to have an other-centered, self-giving love on a mission. It's to have more concern for the needs and interests of others than for our own needs. It's also to be self-giving, not seeking one's own advantage. Paul's calling on the Corinthian believers to, to open up by allowing themselves to be disadvantaged for the sake of others. It's love on a mission that they may be saved. Paul can give out this call because he himself has lived out this call in his own life. This statement is a purpose clause. It is through our other-centered, self-giving posture that we can be good neighbors because we are concerned about their ultimate good, namely their salvation. Though this need not and cannot be the exclusive aim in which we relate to our neighbors, it must be our primary aim. God is glorified when our love for our neighbor leads them to embrace him. Paul offers himself as a model of this kind of love. His ministry is a model for how one can adopt to all kinds of different settings in order to make the gospel of Christ compelling. But his models based on accomplishments, uh, on the accomplishments and example of one who's even greater. The only way we can move, be moved out of our self-interest and our self-centeredness and live lives of that are other-centered, self-giving, love on a mission, is to see that we are recipients of God's other-centered, self-giving love on a mission in Christ. That's the end of the quote. It's for this reason that Paul writes in 11.1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is the conclusion of the previous passage about being all things to all people to win them. It's not about Paul promoting himself, but his example of dying to himself to build others up with the love of God. He does everything to win more souls to Christ. And that often means setting aside our preferences and our freedoms as Jesus did for us. Jesus set the example by eating and drinking 
with tax collectors and sinners, all to introduce them to his father. When Jesus says, I've glorified you on earth, he's declaring that all that he did was not for his own glory, but for the father. And that's why the father exalted him and gave him the highest place and a name above every name. Could we say, follow me as I follow Christ? Man, I would be very hesitant to do that. My desire is to follow Christ without hesitation, putting him first in everything, living just to glorify him. Paul could say this, though he didn't consider himself to have attained yet. We see that later in Philippians 3.13. In some ways, I wish the congregation would follow my example, like getting up early in the morning, getting in the word, taking time to pray, seeking God's direction for each day, you know, doing the little things that need to be done around the facility and, and helping others. But this passage about much more than that, it's about loving others with God's love giving freely for their good, both your time and your resources, so that God, not the giver, gets the glory. Yes, I wish we all lived solely for the glory of God, not for reward in heaven or recognition now or in the future, but because he loves us and he set aside his glory to serve us in love. It is finished. We need do nothing more Resting in the abundance, we can deny our rights and give freely. Once again, I want to use a quote from Pastor Ohm as he sums this up. It's immensely encouraging to know that because Christ has gone to trial for us, we are no longer under trial. As a matter of fact, the court is adjourned. Hallelujah. We are free to love our neighbors and to glorify God. We are no longer in the courtroom. We are newly motivated lovers because our affections have been steered by the beautiful picture of Jesus going to trial in our place and giving us all the advantages that he had. He gave up his rights so that we might utilize our rights not to be sectarian and to abuse or ignore other people, but rather to lovingly serve them and to be disadvantaged for their good. We now can live a life of freedom that doesn't abuse our liberties, but instead uses those liberties for the glory of God by loving our neighbors. So by the grace of God, may we, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, come to a place where we can say, that all we do is for the glory of God. Why? Because he gave his all for us. He deserves the glory. And we are blessed to glorify him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Joe, would you lead us in a closing song? And then I'll give the benediction.